This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. All right, Nathan, it's pretty hard to take your eyes off those rising gas prices right now. And so that's what we're going to talk about. But before we get into those details, Nathan has a story, I think, to to get us started here. Does it have yeah, to do well, with gas? It, it does. Yeah. So the... um. Well, I, I think all of us, you know, the grandparent story was, I remember when gas was 25 cents a gallon. Like, so this is a perennial thing to show your age by saying like the low prices of gasoline that you can remember in the past. Um, that being said, I did see on a trip yesterday, 4.15 a gallon in Virginia, which is way higher than I think I've ever seen it there. But when I was uh, 16 years old, my family did a 27 day camping lap around the United States, hit most of the national parks and forest. It's a good time. But, uh, and some of those parks, they don't have gas stations or they're very uh, far apart. And I remember uh, one particular, it was Yellowstone maybe, said, you know, if you break down because you run out of gas in this park and we bring you uh, gas, it's going to cost you $3 a gallon. And I remember my dad going on this great big rant about, mm-hmm. you boys are going to push this van out of the national park before I pay $3 a gallon for gasoline. And it was this funny thing we were hoping that we didn't run out of gas because we can envision all of us pushing the family van over a mountain to coast down to a gas station to save not having to pay $3 because that was seen as just obscene at the time. So when people talk about gas prices, prices always reflect back on that of uh, what we thought was ridiculous in the past. Now, uh, that's a, a long time ago. So fuel prices do seem to be one of those things that we kind of use as a a natural national barometer of how things are going. And of course that gets used in lots of ways, but anyway, funny memory from, in my mind, at least, uh, on gas prices in the past. Yeah. And that was, that's a good lighthearted introduction to, again, a fairly heavy season that we're, I think that we're just experiencing here. I, well here globally, you know, I think we can rattle off a couple of facts here. I think we, we, just surpassed the 6 million deaths mark for COVID worldwide. And now we're talking about war once again in all of our headlines with Ukraine. As of this recording, and this is the, I think this is the third day of peace talks. And by the way, we did, we sat down, if you haven't listened to it already, we sat down with my dad, Stuart McAllister, who, by the way, you may not know this if you, if you haven't gone to our website, but who is also a member of the Thinking Out, Li- Out Loud team. He is our, minist- our director of ministry. But he has an extensive knowledge of Eastern Europe and specifically its history. So we talked to him for about an hour, diving into some of the history of what, what has, you know, behind the conflict in Ukraine. We're dealing with, obviously, geopolitical matters and economic matters, but that's not all that's going on. There's a lot more there. And I think that's a really 
helpful conversation. So I we'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. But part of what has me thinking about yeah the gas prices as a a national kind of barometer is the fact that we've got we've got that happening, and of course, so much is connected with that. So I think a lot of people are very understandably worried at this point because we've got we've already we're already dealing with inflation that's that's constantly in the news it's constantly in our conversations and that's likely going to <laughs> this is not going to go away this is only going to increase with with you know the high you know the high price of oil so i guess as we're one idea that i want to put out here nathan and i think we're going to talk about this more as we go forward because we're talking there's you're going to hear a lot of talk about warfare and conflict geopolitical forces but as christians a really important word for here for us here is also going to be peace and peacekeeping and here's the idea that i that i want to put out there and i'd love to get your response to this one nathan it's this is and this this idea is not mine this is, this belongs to stanley hauerwas theologian who teach taught for years at Duke Divinity School is now professor emeritus there but he basically points out that what people often want is not peace it's order and that there's a crucial distinction there so before i press into where why i think that's relevant right here as we talk about the economy as we talk about skyrocketing gas prices I'd love, Nathan, I'd love you to weigh in on that idea a little bit, peace versus order and the distinction there, if I can just put you on the spot. Yeah, all right, great. I disagree. No, I don't know. Uh, um, so here, uh, <laughs> ye, I, I'm inclined to say that that is true, and so let me take your convoluted question and make it worse, and then we'll see if we can work ourselves out of this quagmire. Part of the thing is, uh, t to relate that line, what we seek is order, not peace, to relate it to the economy is to say that very little that we participate economically in do we know the true cost of. And so there are economic benefits to order that is gained through less than ideal circumstances always in your life. So whether or not you can buy cheap products from another country that's economically efficient, but it comes at the cost of the treatment of people in a different part of the world but it's in a well-ordered system, even if you don't agree with how that well-ordered system is operated politically, then yes, being able to buy your pencils or whatever at whatever price um, is not an outworking of peace. It's an outworking of order. And as long as the order has an economic benefit to it, we tend to like that. So, I, so on one hand, it'd be easy to say, yes, we like the sense of stability and predictability that comes when there's order. That's one category of it. But I, I think part of it is just to all raise our hands and say we're implicated in the economic benefits that come from order, not necessarily the economic benefits that come from peace. Does that, does that make sense? Did I say that in a way that you're, you're nodding there, but help me flesh that idea out. Um, that order is better for us fiscally than peace sometimes. Yeah. Because I mean, essentially order is the status quo. Order is convenience even if it comes at a very high cost somewhere far away essentially so yeah you're you're elaborating on that principle 
And so here in this case, it's one thing to care, to, to voice a concern and to care deeply, for instance, about Ukraine and to say these people have a right to their independence, they have a right to their freedom. And then it's another thing to begin experiencing some actual tangible inconvenience on your own shores. And yep. so well, in other words, on. if let you're going to voice me, that... Let, me, inter- let yeah. me interrupt here. Time out. Interrupt. Um, because you, you have some perspective here. Let's Before we get on to the rest of your thought, after I so rudely interrupted you, um, <laughs> is to say that a 40% increase in your gas price is not pales in comparison to the inconveniences that have been leveled on other people through multiple conflicts. Um, and so it, there's a little bit of, it's like, Oh, the gas prices are okay. There are also a million people trying to flee from their country and being shelled while it's happening. So part of me has a little bit, like I, I sense an uneasiness in myself in this conversation. And I'm guessing you as a listener might as well of saying like, yeah, there are like, you know, there's always that like, well, first world problems. Right. Um, there is some of that. And then even if you look historically at wars in which you had gas rations and tire rations and sugar rations, and, um, we're not, we're not anywhere there yet. So whatever we say moving forward, we recognize that the category that we're talking about, the degree to which we're experiencing that right now in our lives is fairly minor, but we can still use it as an interesting conversation starter to begin to assess some of the presuppositions and perhaps corrupt postures of our own heart on some of these topics. I rest my case back to the rest of Cameron's thought. Yeah, and I want to tread... I don't want to tread so carefully that I'm barely walking here. <laughs> as as Christians, we really are called to a way of life that is, from a worldly standpoint, often massively impractical. And what what I mean by that is, if we want to press into following Christ and his way, no matter what, of course that's going to come at a cost to us. Of course, that's going to mean we're going to we're going to say no to certain practices and certain habits, whether those are and it it sounds so general right now because we're not we're not I, we need to I'll I'll fish out some specific examples of what this looks like, but the notion that we that you're committed to order above all above all else. Not that there's anything wrong with order per se, but order above all else can be a problem because now we're we're talking about we're we're really our sole litmus test when we're in when we're in these kinds of, in this kind of territory is convenience and ease. And the words that often get used to describe this are just, well, I want to be practical, I want to be feasible. But if we want to be people who are just then we are going to have to do some very hard work. Being just requires a lot of very difficult hard work. So this is why, just to get messy for a second, this is why conversations on the issue of race are so incredibly loaded on North American shores. And again, we did we did an episode on this with our friend Brandon Cleaver, and we talked about that. And again, you can go back and listen to that one. But one of the one of the the things that Brandon pointed out was when you have conversations about, for instance, racial injustice, the nagging element that's so frightening for so many people is that if you really press into the, into this, this means 
I'm going to have to change my life. I might have to change my, not only my perspective, it's one thing to change your opinion and and your perspective, but change my habits, change my actual lifestyle. And we as human beings, I think the rising gas prices right now, some of what we're experiencing in the economy right now, I mean, this is always the case, but we've had a couple of events that have just made this truth unavoidable. COVID-19, and now war, and now all of these worldwide tensions, what we're seeing is that we are, as human beings, we have everything to do with one another. We are related, I mean, we are relational creatures. And because we have that shared interest in this world, what we do, what happens to, to us, it affects everybody else. And we're having to, we're having to deal with that. So, I mean, in so many ways, the we're having our individualism that we, I don't think it's necessarily even a principled kind of philosophy. It's just so deeply ingrained in certain places on the globe, especially North America. We're having that challenged left, right, and center. And so, yeah, is it is it difficult to think about? Yeah, a forty percent increase in gas prices is is not. It's more than just an inconvenience. I don't want to downplay this. This is this is devastating for a lot of people's livelihoods. So this is very serious stuff. I I I mean I don't want to downplay the difficulties on our shores either. But also to recognize, I guess Nathan, and again, this is where Christians sound deeply impractical. There's nothing that surprising about that. This shouldn't be, I don't think this should be that shocking, given the, you know, the, the sort of seismic waves that have been hitting us lately. And if you look into history, this, is, this happens from time to time. So let me ask you a difficult question. You are absolutely free to turn this around and just throw it back at me. <laughs> but why two-part question, Nathan? I have my ping pong paddle ready. Have that ping pong p- paddle ready. Why are we, A, we look at all this, why, why are we so afraid and why should we not be afraid? When we look at the economy right now, when we look at inflation, why are we so afraid? But why should we not be afraid? Yeah, so I, I guess the, the, the fear element with economics is that economics is our security blanket for the future. So in the unknown of what is yet to come, we look at our economic resources as the thing that will protect us come what may in the future. And so anytime that there's uncertainty in what that looks like, the direction of the stock market, our savings, whatever, um, there's a sense in which if that's where your hope is, then yes, this would be a time for fear. Um, And you can have that fear, I think, not merely in self-serving and inward-looking ways. Certainly that's part of it. But it's a a general... um, two parts of this. One is that if we think about culture and our way of life together, there are two elements, broadly speaking, that are the last things that we have in common. And so laws are one of those we've talked about, the emphasis on the legal system as a way of change because the laws are the thing that apply to all of us in locale. Also, in your community, the other thing that applies to everybody is the price of gas. And so economics becomes the foundation of one of the last things that we all have in common culturally speaking, in your community. So just think through that a second. Think about your neighborhood, the streets you live on, the cul-de-sac, whatever. What do all of you have in common? Um, taxes, maybe. I, maybe not. Um, so, I mean, so there, there are the laws, but then there's the economy. And, and so in some ways, it's almost like the weather, that the economy gives us this 
generic thing to speak about um, that ha- that influences all of us in similar ways. So there, there's that element that it's, in one way, it is a security blanket. In other ways, it is, again, a barometer for how we as a community are doing that's unique comparatively to a lot of the other things that aren't the same for all of us. So there's there's an element in that um, that I would see as the first part of the question that it, it, it points to our collective security, um, which is, which is, yeah, not always something that's the forefront of our minds. What was the second part of the question? Why should we not be afraid? Well, I think, and I can start, I yeah. can, I can take a stab at that first one. If you want, if you want to think on okay, that yeah. for a second, you go Nathan. with the first one again while I work on the second. Cause one. I did ambush you double whammy. Yeah. So I, yeah, so part of the so part of what I think is happening here, what why are we so afraid when the economy gets threatened? This is not a new fear. But I do think in some ways the shape of this fear as we see it here in America is uniquely American. So you mentioned some of the things that we have in common in this country. We talk so much about how divided we are. Actually, I've been thinking more and more about this ever since we listened to that that Mersheimer lecture, Nathan. And we can I'll throw it in the show notes again for those of you who want to listen to the John Mersheimer lecture for University of Chicago. We have way more in common than we generally admit. Is political partisanship a huge issue in, in North America? Oh, absolutely. Do we get very hostile and angry with each other? Oh, sure, absolutely. But most of our, some of our most essential assumptions as a nation are remarkably, remarkably uniform. So we tend to prize self-expression very, very highly, and we tend to prize self-reliance very highly. Now, we spell out the ways in which you secure these goods very, very differently, depending on where you stand politically. But the basic assumptions that we're, you know, freedom is good, we are individuals who who need to be free. Free is Freedom is generally spelled out in negative terms, just meaning, you know, freedom from rather than freedom for. By the way, credit where credit is due, that distinction belongs to Isaiah Berlin. That often, his, his name's not mentioned as much these days. He was a British philosopher. But another one of those abiding sources of unity, I think, and again, there, there's different ways people spell out how we get this, but is security. That we should be safe, that, sh- that we should feel safe. And so when you see a buckling economy... That's when a lot of people are very afraid. And here's where it's going to sound like we are quite superficial, because we are superficial, I think, in, the, in North America. What we're, I think what a lot of us are afraid of also is losing a certain lifestyle. Because it is well known around the world and now more and more you know we've kind of spread this habit, habit that you know north americans we we are quite an excessive <laughs> group of people and we are major consumers and our consumer habits often take pretty wasteful and drastic shape because we're just we're so committed to abundance and then when that's under th- and the problem is when you live that way you live excessively you live with you know with such abundance, you get addicted to it. And then when that comes under threat, it it does get really scary. So that sense of, there's the sense of security but being undermined, but there's also the sense that, well, my lifestyle is 
being threatened. You know, one of the points that Stuart McAllister, my dad, made on the podcast that we did with him when he was talking about how he was talking basically about sitting down with friends in another country, in this case it was Peru, who had very, I mean, did not have much, probably a fraction of what your average, you know, most American households have, and yet didn't want what we have, were very happy with what with with where they were because they felt they had fulfilling relationships and friendships and community, and they didn't want that. That kind of consumer model was not appealing to them. And so it's interesting to see that that's such, you know, we need to countenance. I think we're it's it's scary when on a national scale you have to countenance. Maybe we have to live with less. Well, you know, what if what if there are rations imposed? That's not out of the question. The other, I mean, my my question there would be, well, why would that be such a bad thing? Well, what what if it halted production and and you know you'll see skyrocketing prices? Who and there are so many unknowns. Yeah, there are lots of variables. But we're not actually in control anyway. We might think we are. And there, and you know, during times of relative stability, you can really, you know, have the illusion of control. It's much stronger. But we're actually not rational men and women in control of our destiny. If we're Christians, we don't believe that anyway. And the most valuable things in this world are not well, you know, wealth and security. Again, we give, we know that, right? We always give lip service to that. And our lifestyle, we're supposed to hold that lightly, right? We all know that. And yet, when it comes under threat, your response to it is going to be extremely eye-opening. And so, if we're experiencing tremendous fear here, I think it's perfectly understandable because everything around you, the whole culture screams into you, you know, from every channel that those are the things that you need, those are the things that you want. But they're really not, you know, we could turn to those, the most, perhaps some of the most misquoted verses from Paul in, in, you know, Philippians, where he says, you know, I've learned, I basically, I've learned to thrive in all circumstances where I, when I have, ver- when I have, I've learned how to thrive when I have a lot, and I've learned how to thrive when I have nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have you, Nathan, you've probably seen the, the mugs that say, I can do, do all things through Christ, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> yeah. Which There's is that. pretty... Say, let me, let me jump in here. I have a couple thoughts. Um, one is that I might avoid answering your second question by rejecting the first one, and mm. then I'll pick it back up again. But is fear really the thing that we're experiencing right now? I'm I'm not sure. So I'm I'm having trouble resonating with the question because I haven't felt that personally yet. What maybe I've observed more of is anger instead of fear. And so what the rise in gas prices do or the change in the economy, most people, I I don't think yet feel threatened but everybody loves to have somebody to point to for whose fault this is. So this is Putin's fault for invading Russia. This is Biden's fault for his policies. This is the environmentalist's uh, fault because we have all these res- natural resources that we're not being allowed to use that are artificially inflating the price. Um, or the environmentalist saying, actually, these things are already subsidized, federally speaking, government-wise, so the cost is lower than it should be. It's, it's all finger-pointing. Um, so, so I don't know, in some ways it seems like that is a bit more, you've seen the stickers, the the Biden finger pointing to the gas price thing. I did that, um, (laughs) that whole sticker thing that was going across the nation weeks ago. Um, 
So, yeah. So who do you blame? Who do you point to? There's, there's a lot of that that's going on in the, in the fear category. Yeah. I think there certainly is a materialistic element to that of challenging ourselves with what's necessary in life. We have an economic system that largely, uh, if you, if the prices change and you don't want to change your behavior, you just borrow more money. So credit in our banking system has a lot to do with this. I think if your happiness is based off of your material possessions, then you are going to sense a significant uh, despair, particularly if you're in debt for goofy things that you probably don't need to be in debt for, actually, because you have lived into the materialistic dream. Um, and not to pine for like days of the past, but two days ago, I was sitting down talking to my grandpa and I said, hey, grandpa, how old were you before you saw something made out of plastic? And he's, oh, I was well into high school. How old were you when you got electricity for your whole community? 14, running water, you know, and, and at that time getting electricity just meant a light bulb. It wasn't like a toaster, right? Um, so there are people living among us who can remember, I mean, just look around whatever room or vehicle you're in right now and think if everything that was made out of plastic disappeared mm. or there wasn't any electricity who lived deep, rich, meaningful lives in community without any of that. So I'm not saying we should go back to that. I love the modern conveniences and the fact that I'm podcasting with Cameron from a different state and that you're hearing this remotely. That's all great. I'm just saying part of it is our inability to define what's actually necessary in life. And so if we look at what is the, the minimum in which humans have flourished, and then we look at the excess that we have, the loss of the excess or the recognition of the excess is something to be thankful for, perhaps, or maybe it needs to be trimmed back if it's idolatrous. But if we see the the excess that we have as something to be thankful for, not a right, then I think that puts us in a different posture. Lots of countries in the world have higher fuel prices than we do. Uh, this is like, we're not special in that sense. Um, we're not unique in that way. So yeah, we can lament it, but there are things that we lament because it's a loss of an, of an, of an extra, not of a, a deep way of what our life is based on. Now, if you own a trucking company or something like that, you might want to throw a flag on the play and say, hey, you know, or if you commute 100 miles a day to work, certainly there are economic parts of that. But I'm speaking more broadly than that of saying, I think you can you can see where people, you know, it's the whole thing. If you don't want somebody to get your goat, don't let them know where you keep it tied. So largely your response to some of these things is a is a great litmus test for where your heart and where your hope really lies. So if you are experiencing fear or anger over this, it's a helpful tool, I would guess, to say, where does that come from? And why is that a part of my response to this? And maybe there is a justifiable reason for it, but it also could be, and likely is the fact for a lot of Americans, that we've simply put our eggs in the wrong basket of where security and order and peace comes from. So I think that's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm slow to draw any hard lines there because I think the, the the order and the way in which this runs through each individual human heart will come out at different places there. Um, but you're right. There might be things that need to change in our lives. Um, and those could be difficult and those could be hard, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. So I, I in some ways, I, I, I it's hard for me to answer the question, but I, I guess this is is answering the second part of the question of why shouldn't we be afraid um, and it might sound like I'm being flippant and saying, well, because humanity can live happily with a whole lot less. Uh, that is true. Um, in some, but comparatively, it's hard for me to think that things are that bad 
that would be one element of it. So if you think, you know, we're in an economic crisis, go talk to somebody 50 years older than you and look at the history of the zigzags on the chart in the past. So part of it is, is seeing ourselves accurately in time and the ebbs and flows that's common to all humanity. Part of it is realistically seeing what is necessary and what we have that's an additional gift and extra um, excess and graciousness in our lives. Um, so part of and then part of it is just a real evaluation of like, think about the Lord's Prayer here, Cameron. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then listen to this line. Give us this day our daily bread. That is not a long-term investment strategy. Mm-mm. The Christ taught his disciples to pray that the Lord would provide for them on that day what they needed for that day. And we like to think, well, the stocks are pointing to this, and so my 30-year projection on my retirement index and funds are this. Um, and I'm not saying, again, that it's wrong to think about the future at all, but it's wrong to place your hope in a theoretical future and miss the goodness of the present. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Delivers from the evil one. So you have protection and provision and proper orientation about who is in control with the idea being that it's in our hearts to not want to forgive the brokenness of the world that is the thing that God wants to work on first. I would submit to you that the that the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples there speaks precisely to a moment such as this on all of these aspects and elements. Uh, tomorrow has enough to worry about, you know, <laughs> on its own. Why are you doing that? Take some time and watch a sparrow uh, <laughs> and remember the Lord knows when one of those fall. So this is not a pie in the sky idealism that says, oh, you know, things aren't really that bad and this isn't difficult. And compared to the, uh, there's, okay, there is some comparative um, evening out that can happen there. But I think why we shouldn't fear is that fear largely comes from not looking at all of the resources and the, and the resources available in a system and in a situation. So, um, yeah, gas prices can be rising, and we can still pray, give us this day our daily bread. Those are not, I, I don't know. It's for, for me, somehow, of think of, like, if what Jesus taught really does apply to my life, which I think it does, obviously, but I'm, we're all working on living that out, then there's a way in which we can be cognizant of what's happening in the world around us, and at the same time, not be deeply shaken by some of these things at the same time. So, on one hand, that might not sound practical, but I think the thing that Christ offers there is deeply um, personally ordering and structuring in a way that we can kind of roll with the punches of some of this. So I don't know. What do you think of the Lord's Prayer as an antidote to fear uh, and anger in the, in the face of war and disorder? Yeah, I think I keep going to the Lord's Prayer, and also to Matthew, the end of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus spends a lot of time telling us that we really don't need to worry about anything. We don't need to worry about what we'll eat. We don't need to worry about the clothes that we'll wear. And this is the occasion, this is what led Dallas Willard to say one of the things that I've always found to be the most personally challenging from him. The world is a perfectly safe place for you and I. And it's funny because I often play with that. I'll set that side by side with the tagline for the movie Alien from Ridley Scott, which is sci-fi horror film that's one of my favorites. 
The tagline for that is, in space, no one can hear you scream. So in other words, it's a picture of loneliness and isolation and fear. And I I often point out that I find that in space, no one can hear you scream a whole lot more compelling because it gets to the heart of some of my own fears that I have to outgrow. And part of what I need to recognize is that, first of all, my own, my personal thriving does not necessarily equal economic prosperity, nor does it necessarily equate to, you know, total a total sense of security in this world. And in fact, this is a this this world is of course fallen, so there are going to be many there's going to be all kinds of hurt and pain. And to say that is not to trivialize any of it. But I often think about the apostle Paul's words where he calls the trials and the suffering that we endure momentary light affliction. And Paul could say that because Paul went endured a lot of pain and suffering, and indeed did up until the very end, and yet entrusted himself entirely into Christ's hands. And so the Lord's Prayer, the end of Matthew chapter 6, these are deeply practical in a kingdom sense. I think from a worldly standpoint, they look quite odd. And so I think part of what I'm getting at, and this is, I'm aware, this is not an easy episode in, in, in any way, and it may sound like some of what, what we're saying runs the risk of, of insensitivity, or it sounds just odd or too ambiguous, but I think part of what I, what I want to get at is, if you are a Christian, and you truly do believe that all things are in God's hands, inclu- including your life, and also that one day you will die, and that death is not the end, of course, if those are your convictions, then there is no reason to walk around in a state of fear or anger or huge agitation all the time, because you really will be fine, and Christ is in control. And the fact that that sounds like it might be impractical or it might be a weak answer, if that's how we're hearing it, that shows you, I would suggest to you, that shows you the actual temptations of unbelief as they actually manifest themselves in our lives. Because when when our lifestyle gets shaken, when our ways of life and our and our habits when we start to find that they're encountering a lot of friction and a lot of resistance, that's a really good time to examine what our underlying assumptions actually are and where we actually direct our trust. Is it to God and his kingdom? Or is it to our own sense of control, our wealth, our jobs, our own sense of personal security? We know, I mean, again, if we are Christians, we give lip service to the fact that all of that is temporal, it's all passing away, and yet so often, if we're not careful, we default to living as, as though all of that is ultimate. And so then yeah. when it's under threat in some way, yeah, 
So here's all right. Here's Nathan the cynic. Before we wrap this up, is one question to also ask yourself is when I am afraid, who benefits from that? And a significant percentage of our economy is based off of you buying a product to keep you from being afraid of the thing that you've been told you should be afraid of so somebody can sell you something. Um, so so it's contested space, but it's it's in the I, I, idea realm, not in the economic realm that a lot of this plays out. I was talking to a guy the other day who had a, a, gen, a backup generator for his house and a backup generator to his backup generator in a Faraday cage so that an electromagnetic pulse couldn't take out his backup backup generator. Now, the probability of him needing that, he'll be prepared for that. But when you look at the tens of thousands of dollars in order to construct that system, um, we can laugh at that as the prepper. Okay, what about cosmetics? I'm afraid I'm not pretty enough. What about, and you can go right down the whole marketing scheme of, it's one thing to look at economics and the other side of the world and fuel prices, but there are other things of what are you being sold that's a lie, that is not the foundation of where your security comes from. It's not the foundation of who you are in your identity. Confusion on identity is one of the hottest commodities in helping you form an image of yourself that's being pitched to you in order to buy the right shampoo um, or even the right food or publications or news sources. And so all of this, I think... Sorry, Cameron, you had kind of a nice way of wrapping that up there. And then I just threw all of this in there on top of it is to say that obedience to Christ is deeply practical because what Cameron was outlining there, people say, well, that's irresponsible. And I would just say compared to what? <laughs> compared to letting a marketing agency tell you what you should be afraid of? Um, who will provide for you in the end? What do you want to do? But so, do you really believe that? And do you really believe that? But see, yeah. that's the that's the tension that I'm trying to. Yeah, that's the tension I'm trying to get at, Nathan. Because I think the big. I I still I love the term. Love the term. That's a bad way to put it. I think the term practical atheism is incredibly helpful and useful because when you look at and I think often it's the way fear operates in our lives that will tell us that or what our actual sources of security are or what we who we actually think is in charge and and who's actually in control and when you press many of us we think that yeah you need to get the right politicians in the right places not that that's not a, an important task but that that's the ultimate goal get the right people in office get the right security system on your home make enough money and yeah maybe go to church on sunday and and all of that but then you know when you're in the real world do those real tangible things. And I guess part of what you're saying, which is helpful here, is you're pushing back on the so-called practicality of all of those human marketing strategies. And let's face it, the fear industry is a huge one. That's what keeps you reading all sorts of headlines. But yeah, who's actually in control? Now, if you believe, if you really do believe and live as though you believe that God is in control, nothing that we've said is going to sound surprising or even remotely impractical. If you don't, it's going to sound, it's going to be a challenge, I think. So let's wrap this up by bringing this back to your Howard Voss quote. Question, I think we've talked about this before. Why was Peter asleep the night before his execution? Um, <laughs> You know, that if you want to lose sleep over something, knowing you're about to get beheaded would be one of those things. So Howard Voss is saying, we don't want peace, we want order. I think... There would be one way to flip that around, and this is not what he's saying, but to use those same phrases is that when we understand who is in charge, which is why the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, 
that we're making a statement of proper ordering. Who's actually running the show here? Who's steering the boat? Who's driving the train? Who's running the world? That there's an order there that when we recognize that peace then becomes a gift from the one who is in charge. So Jesus says, I give you my peace, not as the world gives it, which is the understatement of all time because he's about Mm -hmm. to have the pulp beat out of him, crucified, and all of his civil liberties taken from him by an unjust court system. On and on, and look what happens to all of his followers and disciples. And Jesus says, I told you so, and they're going to hate me, and they hate you. And Paul gets snot kicked out of him multiple times. Okay, we get it, Jesus. And then Paul writes, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So peace is a real thing. It's not a theoretical, impractical idea. And order is also something to aspire to. But when we have the wrong concept of what order means, then you're never going to have a proper peace, even in the midst of chaos. However, if you have a proper understanding of the scale and the hierarchy in which order does exist and who's in charge of all of this, then peace becomes a viable option. And you can watch people kneel down and forgive their executors and all kinds of crazy things done in the name of Jesus. That actually is the peace that is transformative in the world and it bears witness to people who really believe, not a practical atheism, but a deeply pragmatic Christocentrism and celebration of a heavenly father who they point to as in charge of the world. So let's, I, I think what we're pushing for here is steady Christianity. That is the byproduct of recognizing that there is a real order, that peace is a real live option for you on this day and at this moment. And that out of that framework and the grace that has been extended to you, you therefore have a solid foundation to work on to, to affect meaningfully, meaningful change in the world around you and to invite people into the foundation of real hope. So this isn't a, this isn't just a metaphysical, um, exercise. It has deeply profound outworkings and how you experience this day and whether or not you wake up with a heaviness or with a, a grin in your soul and a skip in your step of leaning into seeing what God will do next and what it is that he's asking of us. It's not e- it's easy to rattle that off right here. I don't know what you're facing this day, the ups and downs of things, but let's be reminded that that is, despite it all, what Christ offers us. And so let's lean in the direction of taking his word on the matter uh, rather than the things that pop into our news feeds at this exact moment. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers or make a donation. Visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.